If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out GuardianVets.com now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas, and I'm excited that you're here. And with that, we're going to jump into this week's podcast here in just a second. We're going to hit up our sponsors that help make the show possible. There's lots of companies that I believe in that I think help veterans across the board, whether it's find a job, hire talent, become more efficient in their practice, all those things, right? So these sponsors mean a ton to me. So I know a lot of people will fast forward or skip through them. But if and when you're looking for help and some of the solutions they offer, I would highly, highly encourage you to check them out. And so with that, no further ado, jump into the ads and we'll get right into the show. So thank you for listening and uh, enjoy. I get it, Isaiah, you talk about Bitcoin all the time. Well, as I go out and about, I continually hear the demand for any more Bitcoin education, or I don't really understand. I hear you talking about it. I know you're passionate about it. I know you have a lot of conviction, but I need more info. And that's where Bitcoin for Vet Med really came from, was taking, hey, the 10,000, 100,000 hours of time that I've spent and distill it down into bite-sized courses and walking you through of getting a foundational why, a little bit of understanding the technical side of Bitcoin, and then how to grapple with the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and just the things that you hear throughout the media, and giving you the ability to up your Bitcoin knowledge to go from zero to hero, and feel a lot more comfortable saying, okay, this is something that matters, and I want to take some of the value that I create and save into Bitcoin. So head over to bitcoinforvetmed.com or click the link in the show notes. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. Finding a job or finding a veterinarian shouldn't be a waste of time. Enter an offer first. Paul Diaz and team have created something really special with Offer First. Some of my favorite reasons are as follows. Candidates and employers will both have values aligned on the first step, not the last. The sign-up process, quick and simple, no resume required. So if you're looking for a job, but you aren't really sure, it's as easy as scrolling on Zillow for a home. And finally, if you have a great match, it's based on your each unique requirements, not random keywords. If you want to learn more, listen to episode 179 with Paul Diaz. We cover all of that. The other exclusive great thing that you're going to get from this ad read and from Paul is I convinced him to give an exclusive discount to listeners of this podcast. So for owners, you're getting a 20% discount on both the placement of any candidate, but also access to the platform. Use VSP if you go to offer first or the easiest way is a link in the show notes. So check it out. Associates, those looking for a job, same thing. Use the link in the show notes. Use VSP if you go directly to offer first. But 
I will donate and Paul will donate to a veterinary nonprofit of your choosing. So each person that signs up gets a vote. Your votes actually count, which is incredible. And so I'll be reaching out. I will handle that. But there's going to be a donation made for any associate or any job seeker that adds on the platform. We want to make sure that not only does the platform help to make sure that you find a better fit, better culture, better role, but it's also doing good in veterinary medicine. Okay. So link in the show notes is going to take you to offer first. It's going to automatically apply that, but also use code VSP if you go to offer first directly. And offer first is changing the game of veterinary recruiting. I want each and every one of you to benefit from it. So check them out today. Find out for yourself why my friends at Shepherd Veterinary Software are the fastest growing practice management software. They're doing something right. Founded by Dr. Cindy Barnes, Shepherd is an intuitive, easy to learn, streamlines practice management. Built for vets, by vets, it works for you and your team so you have more time to spend on what's most important, your patients. Shepherd automatically updates the medical records, adds services to the invoice, generates discharge instructions, and so much more. Bring home more stories and less stress. Check them out at shepherd.vet. Again, that's shepherd.vet. As promised, the podcast has not turned into just me talking to you. So I have guests again, and I'm super excited today. I'm joined by the House Call Vet herself, Dr. Eve Harrison. Dr. Harrison runs the House Call Vet Academy, which is an online CE coaching for mobile veterinarians. She's a certified compassion fatigue professional. She is QPR certified in suicide prevention and is a certified veterinary practice manager. She is a semi-pro flute player, which I thought was amazing and cool. And what you'll find is there's also some fun, some might call them spicy vet med takes that we'll get into. But Dr. Harrison, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you, especially on those spicy takes. Yeah. <laughs> we have some good stuff coming up. <laughs> yeah. And I am really, really glad that we made the connection. So I've had a couple of people mention like, hey, you should interview her. You should need to get her on the show. And then it just has worked out that we finally got it done. I know you've done a lot of different podcasts around the concierge model, house call model, and so for folks that want to check that out, that's not going to be this conversation, <laughs> but there are things that I'm sure will get brought up that may tie that back in. One of the things that I really wanted to dive into here at the beginning is the idea of your training around practice management. And this idea of a lot of the training is fit almost more from a corporate side versus this private practice side. And I just want to be able to understand differences between what the ideas behind individual private practice in corporate look like. So for that, you can take it any way that you want. And hopefully this pinging will stop on my computer here in a second. <laughs> but you want to take that one away of this idea of what's corporate, what's a small business and uh, training that you receive from a practice management perspective. Yes, I love that you asked me this question. This is the heart of what I think about every day. <laughs> and you're absolutely right that it did come up in my CVPM training, that the training really is geared towards a corporate mindset in terms of practice management. So I guess to me, the big difference is scale. Okay, so actually <laughs> backing up, what does corporate mean? There's a lot to unpack here because an independent solo house call vet or an independent solo practice owner can be a corporation, right? As long, if you're incorporated, you wouldn't have an LLC or you're an S-corp or you're filing your taxes as corp filing. 
you are a corporation. But I think what it means to me and to a majority of the community to be corporate is that you have many employees, you have many foci of where your practice is functioning. So you're a national company or you are it functioning in many states as you build towards a national company. And I think there's also, to some extent, a mentality difference that when you have something that is being fueled by the desire to scale to the point of a national level of endeavor, you can't help but have a depersonalization from your employees, a depersonalization from your clients. And you can't help but have a transactional form of relating to all of those people and animals. I'm not even sure that it is a voluntary decision. I think that when you take something to a massive scale and you prioritize scaling, it's not possible to know all of your employees or to care about all of your employees, to know or to care about all of your clients or all of your patients. And then there's also, I think we had discussed this previously, that when you are a CEO in some office <laughs> making decisions on behalf of your employees or your veterinarians that are out in the field, your impact simply cannot be influenced or informed by the boots on the ground experience of those employees. So there's an inherent attachment and an inherent transactionality about it. And I think that is what is the trademark kind of quality of a corporate practice. Whereas independently owned, granted, there are absolutely independently owned practices that fit this same model of corporate. It's a corporate mindset is kind of what I'm trying to say. But when you think about independent house call practice, this is a really, really micro mini nano type of business. This is beyond small business. This is intimate, super intimate, as non-transactional as it comes, right? And not that transactionality is bad, but when you are trying to form a healing or a therapeutic connection with a client and their animal, I think that transactional thing can really take away from the healing that can occur, that the mutuality of the therapeutic relationship. So when I'm in my client's home, I'm benefiting too. I feel this joy of connecting with the client and with the animal and knowing I'm giving my entire self and my ethical um, way of being a doctor strictly from my center, my sense of what I believe is truly right for this animal. And that pays back in terms of my own satisfaction of my work. I'm not working for anyone else. I'm not meeting a quota for euthanasia, for example, which I know exists out there in some of these kind of corporate house call companies, which is, I find highly disturbing. But I don't have any sort of pressure of any type telling me when is the right time to euthanize an animal, if I should or shouldn't euthanize an animal. Speaking of animals, I don't know if you can hear it, but there is a dog and a squirrel fight happening outside my window right now. <laughs> I'm hearing both of these animals going at. <laughs> but I think that the sort of ability to have a personal connection with the people that I work with and the people that I work for is something that is really a differentiating factor between large, highly scaled 
money bottom line is the most important thing because that's the only way it can be versus the business owner is the one doing the work. They're, they're in the business, they're working in the business and they're working on the business themselves, like really, really in it. And I think that is a really precious and valuable thing that is lost through corporate practice. And I think also through the corporate mindset, which I got a taste of in my own CVPM training. Granted, it's great training. And I think for larger practices, I think it's really helpful even for independent practices that are large, there is a taste of that sort of depersonalization. And I think on some level, you know, if you're working within that system, education as to how to function within that system is necessary. So that's kind of what I have to say about that. That's my brain dump there. Yeah. I have a couple different, I guess, thoughts, then a couple different questions. And the first one is hearing you describe corporate makes me think of the dysfunction that is the government, right? So you think about like federal and then state and then local government, right? There's this idea, and I'm trying to remember who told me this because it's not an original Isaiah thought, but it's like punching distance. When people have to make decisions that they have to then interact with, it's very different. Where if like you make a decision, but I'm working for you and it's terrible, well, you're within distance that I can come and complain and you know pretty quickly, hey, that was a really bad decision. I probably shouldn't do that. And maybe we're going to tweak it. Versus if I'm sitting in Omaha and you're out in LA, it takes a lot longer for that to get back to you and or maybe you just don't care, right? So yeah. I think that's really important. And the one thing that you talked about that I would be curious, so businesses that are successful will naturally grow. And so the owner, a lot of times their role has to change because they can't always be the one hands-on doing everything. Sometimes that's best because I worked in a company early on where the best sales guy got promoted to run the sales department. Terrible idea because he was great at what he did. Um, horrible manager of people. So it was just a wreck. But for some veterinarians or from some people just within any business, the natural gradual growth of them as an individual might be that their role shifts and they're not the person doing all the hands-on work in the other pieces. How do you balance that? If you think about wanting to grow and wanting to, you know, achieve some scale, but maybe they're, you know, you're not going to be the next, you know, insert the three letter name of whatever your favorite corporate entity is. Um, <laughs> That's a beautiful question. And it's so relevant. As I teach business, of course, I have to think about scaling and the growth that is inevitable when a business is successful. And so I think just as you said, it is a balance. And I think also, as you said, it is very natural for the roles to change and to shift. Also for the goals of the business to change and shift and marketing techniques to pivot depending on the environment that you're in. And I think that to me, my sort of North Star is, do I still feel like the good of the patient, the client, and my own kind of deep well-being are all being met? And am I connected to the work? Is it becoming rote? And is it just becoming about the dollar? Do I still love the work? Do I still feel pride in what I'm doing? Because it's truly what I'm giving and what I want to give and what I want to see happen. And do I know all of my clients? Do I know all of my employees? Can I care for them and can I meet their needs? I think very, very few employers have the ability to lead in a way where they maintain those priorities that I can see, understand, care for, and properly provide for my employees. 
I think people encounter that threshold, they cross it, and they use this sort of inevitability of scaling as an excuse to continue plowing on. I think at a certain point, it is not ethical to scale. I don't think eternal scaling and eternal growth and change and pivot for bigger, 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 bigger is inherently ethical. In some cases it is, but I think it's very, very rare to have an employer or a leader who's able to do that in a way that is ethical and maintains the well-being of everyone that they are tasked with caring for or leading or employing. And so I think at a certain point, if you realize, hey, this is my integrity has been compromised, I'm harming my employees or I'm not really providing really good care for animals anymore, you have to make a decision. And that is either to stop growing <laughs> in the direction that you're growing and maybe pivot and add some other dimensionality to your growth. For example, my house call practice can only remain in integrity when I stay small. I can't hire other vets to do what I do. It doesn't feel right to me. I don't know that I have the capacity to relinquish control <laughs> and therefore I'm not gonna subject other people to that aspect of myself. We all have boundaries to what we're capable of kind of inviting into our lives while remaining ethical and respectful towards other people. I know that about myself. I don't want to manage other people. I don't want to be managed. So growth in that direction was a hard stop for me. But when my business became successful and at that point where the question came up, how are you going to scale? Are you going to franchise? Are you going to hire? What are you going to do? The question to me kind of begged what ended up happening, which was I decided to teach. And that was my ethical, what felt ethical and aligned and integrity way for me to scale what I do. So it doesn't always have to be hire more people. It doesn't always have to be take on responsibility that you actually can't handle and continue to do well. Why do you think the goal is always bigger, bigger, bigger? I mean, is it the bottom line that it's the money? Because to me it is, but I'm just curious your thoughts. What an interesting question. I mean, I think it's, it's multifactorial. I think that there is a cultural milieu, if you will, <laughs> of just an understanding that bigger is better. It's just part of the culture, especially in America. We see these massive corporate everything, fast food. We see factory farming, uh, which farms animals and the people who live in those communities. We see, I mean, every form of massive Amazon, right? The little bookstores can't keep up with that. Literally every aspect of American life is kind of, I want to say infected. I'm not sure that's the right word, but <laughs> infiltrated? We'll put it infiltrated with this sense of the ultimate success is the biggest you can get and the most number of people that you can serve. And I think that there is a misconception there, a really, really dangerous misconception that this is one of those like the path to hell is paved with good intentions. We just want to help as many people as possible. We want to help every animal that we can. Therefore, we have to continue to grow. I think that's misguided because we all know that we can't help everyone. We all know this, right? It's just a fact. And the folks who sort of take on this sort of like rescuer archetype that almost feel that they're this hero and they're going to do everything they possibly can to help every single animal, every single 
client, that's how you get into big trouble and you lose, you know, what started out as potentially either a really noble idea or lip service and a lie as to why you're growing, which sometimes that is the case. What started out potentially with good becomes quickly exploitative and sort of a justification for getting bigger and bigger and bigger and thereby getting worse and worse and worse to your employees and to the very clients and animals you claim to be serving, right? So when we don't have boundaries on the ethical capacity of ourselves as individuals or as companies as to what we can realistically do in an ethical way with integrity, that's where the ball drops. And I think so it's sometimes it's money, sometimes it's good intentions, sometimes it's lies about good intentions, sometimes it's the culture that bigger is better. And then also that idea that which might come from a very authentic and genuine place that there's a belief that everything grows and it just has to keep growing no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's that idea that you mentioned, which was a valid question. And I think it is a real question, but there is a point it's not unbridled growth with no boundaries or no ethics or no rules or guidelines around it. Yeah. And I'll try not to get too much on a soapbox with a different topic, but the idea of even just from an, an economic perspective, you think about the economy in general, it's always got to grow. GDP has got to grow. These things got to grow. Mm -hmm. There's this big fear that deflation is bad and that's what the Great Depression is. You know, this big mm -hmm. deflationary shock period. Well, the the cost of things coming down should happen. So deflation is natural where we get more efficient. And so it should free us up to have more time and energy to do the things that we love doing, but it hasn't happened that way. And so there's some forces at play that don't allow that to happen very well. And part of that is just the manipulation on the money that we use, right? Because the money can be created out of nothing. And so then you're forced if you can't truly earn, create value and save in a way that you can feel secure, you always got to grow and scrap to mm. get more, to always feel like you can maintain a lifestyle, grow a lifestyle, or just meet the bare minimum of needs. And I think that there's a lot of issues with that that get into other elements of passions of mine and to pivot and not, well, unless you have any comments. Oh, no, no, I want to yeah. hear your passions, actually. Can I yeah. ask? Can I ask? <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, know you said I get to have one question, but I'm asking two. I want to hear your passions yeah. in this. And I wanted to ask yeah, my other so, question. <laughs> I mean, that's partially so like people will hear me and I'm the crazy Bitcoin person, but it's like if you fix <laughs> the money and you go upstream of all these issues, it actually does help solve some things because it gives the ability for the small bookstore, the local veterinary clinic, not to be forced to scale and grow to where it's grow or die. And yeah. it's not that you're not doing a good job, but it's hard to be a single location because you're ordering volumes and all these different things when yeah. you don't get the benefits. And so then you have to compete on price and you have to compete on these other things. Mm -hmm. And you can compete on being the hometown person and there's a certain amount of people that that will resonate with. And that's awesome. It's beautiful. But it does get to the point where if things get tight and people are making those decisions on like, well, I only have so much money, they're going to go to where they can get the service for maybe a little bit less. And who has better pricing power? Who has higher margins? It's like, well, mm -hmm. if I scaled and I pushed mm -hmm. and I did these things, I all of a sudden have an unfair, it's not an unfair advantage, but I have an advantage. So I'm going to play that. And so, so yeah. I think there is the challenge of if you don't scale in the way that things are set up today, that's why you've seen the hollowing out of small business. That's why it is tricky. You have to go raise money or you have to go do these other things to make it work. It's not saying that it's mm -hmm. impossible. And I still think a single location veterinary hospital can crush it and do well. Because I think it actually is a little bit more unique than some other 
businesses that are out there. But yeah, I firmly, firmly believe in a passion of if the money isn't completely borked and broken, that helps fix so much from a local community piece and bringing it back to, we can make decisions here. We can have our stuff here versus having to outsource it to big multinational or national companies that really don't care about XYZ community. Yeah, that is very interesting. And I think that the idea of competition as a pressure to scale, just to keep up with the Joneses, essentially, is legitimate. I mean, it's very legitimate, actually. I mean, a lot of people that I know who are house call vets have started to scale because they fear when the national house call chains come into their area that they're not going to be able to keep up. And I like to validate that fear because I think it's reasonable and it's reality. I don't think people should sit in fear, but I think that those feelings of concern over your livelihood are absolutely legitimate. And that's one of the reasons that I am passionate about (laughs) kind of bringing awareness to the issues around corporate practice, especially corporate house call practice, because these things can affect your livelihood. They could put you out of business. 100% they could. And I think likewise, to think that you are going to be able to scale enough to compete with a national organization that has billions of dollars in venture capital or private equity of whatever kind, to think that you (laughs) continuing to grow and grow and grow is what is going to outcompete with those companies. I think that's a mindset thing. I think it's a security blanket, but I'm not 100% sure that that is what will actually differentiate an independent practice from corporate practice. And I think what differentiates it and keeps us little guys in business, I believe, is the culture, the product itself, not putting marketing above the quality of the work itself. These big companies are really, really aggressive in marketing. They will use the name of your house call practice as their Google AdWords so that any traffic that was going to come to you goes straight to them. They use ruthless marketing tactics, but where they're not aggressive is ensuring that their care is really good and that their employees are really happy and getting what they need. And I think it is a really, really big responsibility to be an employer. You are responsible for the day-to-day tonal quality of every one of your employer's entire lives. They spend hours, days, years in the environment that you've created for them. And as such, I think you owe them (laughs) if you are to be profiting off of their work in any capacity, you owe them a place that doesn't traumatize them or put them into moral distress or compassion fatigues them and leads them straight into burnout on some sort of systemic level, right? So I think that culture shift, that culture difference between the sort of bigger companies and the solo house call vet, that's palpable to the client. I think that's completely obvious. It may not be at first. You know, sometimes the marketing techniques kind of put the wool over people's eyes and they think it's this new, shiny, wonderful thing. But after a little while, most people can feel that and they don't like it because the culture that is experienced by the employees, that trickles down, you know? Yep. You've talked about the responsibility of employing people, which is huge. And I think a lot of maybe newer business owners don't appreciate that as much as they do over time because it is a big responsibility. And so talking about like some of the leadership training you've had, 
in thinking about being able to create, you use a term called the ethics of how we fix each other and like leadership. So I want to just kind of prompt that and then just let you hey. run with it. So, <laughs> Oh that yeah. Mean? That's awesome. Oh my God. I have so many things to say. Thank you for giving me this prompt. I like it. I guess for a little perspective of where I'm at right now, I'm actually the leadership training that I'm doing right now is a little here. We're starting with the spicy stuff. <laughs> it is a psilocybin facilitator training program in Oregon where psilocybin is legal. And that is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, which has been shown over and over and over again to be therapeutic in many ways. So this is a program that I'm in right now that is led by therapists and naturopaths, and it's a form of leadership training, but it's also a facilitation of safe spaces and how to work with people in their trauma. And so I'm a type of person that loves interdisciplinary learning. I feel like anything that I can get from somewhere outside of my field is what's going to be the most valuable to the people that I'm working with. And so I've learned incredible amounts from this program and I've been really leaning into this work. And we had a conversation about something called safe enough spaces that really, really resonated for me. And it made me think this is what I've been doing and what I've been trying to do and what I'm trying really hard right now to bring out and to develop and, and to get even more clear on for my own communities. So I want to talk about safe spaces to begin with. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah, it's a really good question. There's a million and one communities out there, including Facebook communities that are calling themselves, quote unquote, safe spaces. And I think what most of these kind of groups intend to do is to create a community where people feel comfortable to speak and comfortable to share vulnerabilities and they won't be judged and attacked or they'll be safe essentially to say whatever it is they want. And the concept that I've been kind of rolling around in my head through my training about the safe enough spaces is the reality that no space is ever going to be completely safe, especially as it grows. The more people are in it, the more people bring their own traumas and their own sensitivities and their own triggers and their own personalities and blind spots and shadows of themselves that they're not even aware of. And therefore, any coming together of anyone, even if their intention is to create safety among each other, <laughs> it's an inevitability that someone's going to be hurt or triggered or shamed. And therefore, the best that we can do as a facilitator of a safe space or safe enough space is to acknowledge the fact that this is a quote unquote safe enough space, meaning that it will never be perfect. We're all imperfect human beings. And as such, there will be conflict. And then what makes it the safe enough space is acknowledging that that conflict is there and doing what we can to work around it acknowledging that we're all imperfect humans. And to me, what I think creates a safe enough space is having leadership that is willing and able to communicate boundaries and to hold them in a way that is compassionate but firm. And I think there's also an understanding of what it is that generally causes shame to other people. This is not to say that I'm perfect either, but what I work really, really hard on is not 
fixing other people. We all have this really well-intentioned desire to make other people feel better. Or when we see them doing something wrong or something <laughs> that we wouldn't do to kind of insert ourselves and say, hey, you know, I, I would actually do it this way. If it were me, I would do this. You shouldn't do that. Blah, blah, blah. There's this intention of that has within it both well wishes and also a bit of ego. I'm the one that's going to fix you. Ooh. <laughs> you know, and that contributes towards a lack of safety in spaces. And I think the communication with the members of these communities is very important to communicate, hey, we don't fix each other here, okay? It's going to happen because we're not perfect, but we're going to try really hard not to come in here and fix each other and show everyone else that we're the expert instead of them, thereby disempowering them in their own experience of what they're experiencing, essentially. And I also think that in terms of leadership with communities that are particularly unsafe, in veterinary medicine, and I know of a few off the top of my head, what I think could be missing is maybe a lack of a growth mindset, a lack of acknowledgement from the facilitator or the leader that there is always work to be done on themselves. And in terms of maintenance of that safe space, you can't slap a label of a safe space on something and then not show up to moderate the group. Or just sit flat out say, this is not, I, I've, <laughs> I've been in a, a Facebook group where the moderator flat out said, this is not a safe space, which, hey, I have to give you, I have to give you some credit for that. If you're not showing up to contribute towards the safety of it and you acknowledge that, good, let everyone know. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> At least there's no pretenses about what it is and what it isn't, right? But I think what can be dangerous is when when people slap this label of safe space on and then gaslight everyone into <laughs> the belief that it's a safe space when no attention is being given to maintain that safety and no attention is given to the leadership itself in terms of commitment to ongoing personal development, facing one's own challenges, one's own shortcomings. To me, I believe being in charge or <laughs> being a facilitator or an employer, any position where people perceive you as a leader, I think that comes with an inherent responsibility to commit to lifelong self-improvement, be it through therapy, be it through group work, support groups, coaching, <laughs> books, whatever it is, and especially to look at one's own faults and be continuously acknowledging that we all have those faults, to try and stay out of shame regarding those faults, and to be committed to addressing them. And I think that's what creates safe space, which we all so desperately need in our profession. There's a lot there, and I'm trying to figure out how to formulate a question that like can build in, from there. I think the first one is just, I guess, a comment that, yeah, you never like arrive where you're like, hey, I've conquered it all. I'm got to this point, you talked about like a moderator that doesn't really, or someone that created a group or something. And they're just like, well, we're here, we did it, it's done. It's like, it's gonna be constantly a work in progress. I think people that are humble and drop ego understand that life is a journey and you're gonna to continue to go through those experiences. The safe space thing, I wanna talk more about a little bit of that because I feel like, does it make things more polarizing with safe spaces because I look at this as so many people in the United States, like we can't have disagreements anymore, mm. right? Like I can't view the world differently than you. And we can both have a constructive conversation where we don't agree. We're not going to change each other's mind, yeah. but we can't yeah. challenge someone else's beliefs. 
And so we run to safe spaces. I mean, we probably both raise our hands that, yeah, it's more comfortable to go to people that are going to agree with you and say, yeah, you're right. Versus going to someone that's going to say, no, you're wrong. And this is why. And not that social media is terrible about this because you're never going to change someone's mind arguing online. And I think this is the idea of what a good safe space looks like. And that's why I wanted to kind of bring it up. Is somewhere where you don't all have to agree on the same thing, but at the end of the day, like you respect each other enough to say, you know what? Hey, I appreciate you. I value your opinion. I think you're wrong, but we can still be friends after this. And we don't have to like hate each other because we disagree on said issue. Like, is that considered a safe space? I feel like sometimes people use safe space to like hide from actually vetting out and like digging into why they believe something. Because maybe they've been told that their entire lives and they just have never challenged it or never actually been open to someone poking at that. That's so interesting. And it's such a good point because it sounds like about the echo chamber, like going to the place where everyone agrees with you, being synonymous with the quote unquote safe space. I mean, it depends on what kind of safe space you're trying to create. Like if you're like (laughs) a safe space regarding how you've been persecuted in a certain way and you're looking for a safe space specifically to be with people who have experienced what you've experienced and see it your way, then it might be inappropriate for someone who is the persecutor in that particular situation to be able to voice their opinion and have full credence without moderation of some kind. Not that they would need to be silenced, as you said, but it depends on what the goal is, right? But I think in general, communities are more safe when people can say anything they want regarding their own experience while holding empathy for the other. And I think that it takes a very, very skillful moderator to be able to guide that kind of conversation if it's not already happening in a very respectful way. And I think one of the tools that can be really helpful when we're in community and someone says something that you like hardcore disagree with, this is like one of those therapy things, get curious, you know, instead of staying in judgment or in anger, get curious. Or if you're, I'm channeling so much Brene Brown right now, (laughs) like therapy talk, but it's so good. And sometimes you can even get curious about yourself, like instead of like reacting to that person, why am I so triggered by this? Let's take this as some work that I might have to do. Not that I'm right and they're wrong or that I'm wrong and they're right. Go beyond that. You know, that Rumi quote, beyond the field of right doing and wrongdoing, there is a field, I'll meet you there. I just totally misquoted that. But there's a sense of like, when the harmony comes first above the right and the wrong, that's where safe community can happen and the the holding the other person in respect. But I think that's one of the most challenging things about holding safe space, that when people disagree, being able to hold the paradox that two truths can be correct at the same time and putting the well-being of the tone of the space and the well-being of the community itself above the desire or the need to be right or to fix or to correct other people publicly in a way that shames them. If you can improve the health of an animal, you do it, right? Of course, that's what makes veterinarians special. You're mission driven. My friends at LifeLearn are the exact same way. For over 25 years, they've been partnering with you and your peers, providing affordable, customizable, online software solutions. These solutions save time, increase efficiency, and assist in managing all aspects of operations. Why? They wanna help you improve your partnership with pet owners to improve pet health. 
LifeLearn has award-winning digital media solutions and are leading the pack as they've prioritized having extensive veterinary knowledge throughout their teams. That difference is seen, it's heard, and it's read by thousands of people across the country. Relax, grow, and thrive with LifeLearn. Click the link in the show notes for an exclusive offer to see how LifeLearn can allow you to get back to what you do best. So the way that I'd boil that down in my simple mind in a way is like there has to be a personal relationship first so that people know that they're not getting attacked. And I think that's one of the issues with social media when it's someone you don't know jumping into a conversation, throwing a haymaker to like fight with someone. So if you have that first, it really can help with doing it. And back to almost the idea of the punching distance, like the closer you can Mm -hmm. be in having the relationship first, it allows then for there to be authentic, open true conversation. The other thing though, and I wrote this down, I wanted to come to it. And you said two truths. How can there be two truths? Isn't there the truth? Like help me understand. (laughs) I I do view this as a problem right now. And this is way beyond vet med of like everyone living their own truth. Well, that doesn't make any sense. How can everyone have their own version of truth? Like truth is just what it is, right? Like you discover truth. Mm. Ooh, we're getting really uh, existential here. Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to. Yeah, this is a little different than what we talked about. But I'm like, I gotta, I gotta ask two truths. I, I don't have the answers to all of these things, and, and so I'm not claiming to know the answers to all these things that are like deep existential questions of all of humanity for all of time. Um, what? That's not what names. <laughs> I'm definitely not that. Well, that's why I'm the podcast host. I don't have to answer. I just ask the questions, right? (laughs) That's why I'm very comfortable as a podcast host myself, because it's like, oh, I ask everyone else the hard question. I get very nervous when I'm being interviewed. I'm like, dear God, I don't have (laughs) answers. (laughs) And here you are asking me about how the two truths can happen at once. Okay. So let me brain dump on some thoughts about that. Okay. So the first thing that kind of comes to my mind is this sort of concept, you can hold two people of two different religions who have different, I'm reading so many stories about mythology and spirituality and and culture and everything right now. And you have one person that believes the earth was created by God and another person that believes life was created by evolution. Life was created by God. Life was created by evolution. Is it not possible that they are both true is it not possible that God to one person is the life force that another person is considering evolution? I'm reading this incredible book also through my training called The Ethics of Caring by Kylia Taylor, I think is her. Yeah, I'm looking at the book right now, where it talks about certain ethics of how to hold a client ethically, where if they're having a psychedelic healing experience, for example, it can be ethical it can be non-ethical if you touch them, like you put your hand on their shoulder. That person might have trauma and touch to them might be a huge offense or a violation of some trust. In another situation, if you don't touch the person to soothe them or to provide that human touch and connection, it might be unethical. And there's no way to know which one it's going to be until after it happens. You can ask the person, but they themselves might not even know. So it's ethical and unethical to touch a person while they're having a psychedelic healing experience in the vulnerable state that they're in. And we don't know which one it is. There's a paradox for you. (laughs) I don't know what string to pull on that next. I might uh, make a hard pivot and be like, all right, I went down this trail. 
I don't know. I think we're going to turn around. Uh, or go, I'm trying to think how to connect it. But it is so good. This is heavy stuff. This yeah, is good. It, I just have so many different thoughts on that, but I'm not sure how to articulate in a way that gets me to, because there's a couple other things I want to talk to you about. And I'm looking at, at time and I know that I purposely set aside more time because I knew that we would get into different things. And one of them, and I'm going to kind of give a broader high level view and then we'll go through the kind of two examples, but having and I love the idea of non-consensus views. Like you have a non-consensus view that maybe you hold that your other peers within the industry or whatever someone does, right? They would be like, ah, I don't know. That seems a little out there or I don't really agree with it. But <laughs> having an outspoken view is good. Like you need to have people that sometimes even on a team, the person that is oh, people roll their eyes or whatever because they want to make a comment, that might be the most valuable person. Because what they're going to say cuts deep and it's true. And there's a reason why they should be listened to. Even if it annoys you and you're like, dang it, they're right, but I don't want to hear it. So I understand you had a, an article that was written <laughs> that ended up getting pulled. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just kind of leave it at that and let you kind of share as much or as little or as whatever you want to take with that. <laughs> because I think it is important within veterinary medicine that it's not you know just a it's a crude term, but like a circle jerk that everyone just agrees and backslaps each other and everyone's happy because everyone says the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And th this is another <laughs> circle jerk. I think that's one of the most funny ideas I've ever heard of in my life. It cracks me up that you mentioned that, but you're right also that, and, and kind of like how it relates back to your question about the safe spaces. Does everyone have to agree with each other? And if they can't disagree, is it a safe space? And here we have that exact situation where in veterinary medicine, who controls our publications? Whose money is it paying for our biggest conferences? Whose money is it that is paying for lunch talks in vet school before we've even graduated? Whose money is it? You get the idea. And so when an idea that is counter to what all this money that comes from one place, which is corporate veterinary medicine, when there's an idea that comes counter to that and it is not allowed, something's tricky here. And so to kind of thank you for asking this question because it's a, ooh, it's a, <laughs> it's a zinger. So for the folks that don't know, I had an article that I published and I worked with multiple mentors and an editor, and I had multiple people check this article over, am I in right relationship to my colleagues here? Am I ethical in pointing this out, what I'm saying? I wrote an article basically drawing attention to the corporate practice of house call medicine. And I didn't name names deliberately. I wasn't trying to martyr myself, and I wasn't trying to cause harm per se, but to open people's eyes to concepts that are phenomena that are occurring that are systemically harming my colleagues. And I know that they're being harmed because they come to me in the numbers of hundreds of vets that have personally reached out to me to tell me about their experiences with some of these companies on every level from regulatory problems to gaslighting to needing to be hospitalized due to their own emotional response to the moral injury that had occurred all levels, all levels of really, really gross stuff. And I wrote this article just as a little, you know, I know these companies have great marketing and they promise the world 
They promise the best work-life balance. They promise they're a family, quote unquote, as all the most toxic companies tend to do. And maybe they're not what they seem. Just ponder that. (laughs) Maybe there's something worth investigating if it's your fear holding you back from creating your own practice that they're leveraging against you that gets you to work for them instead of doing it yourself. Is that a possibility? So I opened a bit of a can of worms. It was published in a major veterinary publication. It was very well received by all of my colleagues and it stirred up a lot of conversation. A month later, it was pulled. No explanation, no direct communication to me. And I knew what happened. I knew what happened. I mean, it was pretty clear. So I emailed and I said, is this a technical problem or was the article uh, pulled? (laughs) And it turns out it was pulled and they had a variety of lip service kinds of reasons why. But I just want to pass the baton back to you, Isaiah, just in your opinion, what would you think? You know, just so it doesn't everything come out of me and my projection of what I think happened. What would you think would be the reason that such an article would be pulled? I mean, there's a term that's happened a lot, I think, around social media and things that have come out after the fact that have been very true. And it's all around censorship, right? There's a group of people or people that are in a position of authority or power, whether that's right or wrong, that want certain messages to be heard. And if it's a dissenting voice or a voice that does not shine brightly on them, they censor it and they shut it down. And I think we've seen how destructive that is. So I would say for anyone listening, if you think that you need to censor content, you probably shouldn't do it. Maybe you should address the underlying issue would be the way that I would look at it. But I think different people approach those things in a different way. What you would hope is, hey, maybe we should reflect on this. There's probably kernels of truth. Maybe it is unfair. And maybe what you wrote, they're like, you know what? That's not really how it works. She doesn't know. She's not here. She doesn't get it. But there are kernels of truth here. Maybe we need to fix some things. Maybe we need to reevaluate, come back to the drawing board, figure out how do we get better versus just saying, well, if we don't let anyone know about this, we can keep doing the same thing and, you know, bare our head in the sand. Let's ostrich this thing. It's like, nah, you probably shouldn't do that. So, you know, it makes me just think about censorship and how hard and troubling that is. Because again, the idea of the country that we all live in is the idea of having freedom of speech. And if it's not something that, again, going back to the conversation, if you're not abusing someone with speech, if you're not trying to go out and damage their business and you know defame them or making up lies that aren't true, it's like, hey, this was done in good faith. And I'm just looking at the situation and I know based on conversations, this is what's happening. Veteran medicine should look at that and say, you know what, we should rally behind this or we need to make a change or we need to hold people accountable and not censor them. Yeah, there's a lot of lack of accountability, I think on behalf of the profession, but on behalf of ourselves. And I'm guilty of it too. I'm not the perfect, most accountable person ever. And no one is, you know, that's the the kind of thing we all struggle with this. It's a lifelong battle to be like, shit, I did that. I shouldn't have done that. Damn it. All right, back to therapy. And there are times that I've been like, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. (laughs) It's their fault. And I think that's also human. And then I've gone to therapy over that process itself. And I think it's just like, I know I'm getting deep here, but it's like the experience of being a human is just hard if you're trying to do it in a way that is open hearted. And if you're trying to do the right thing, I think we're all trying to do the right thing. But I guess it just depends on how open and able we are to see ourselves and all of that kind of stuff. But 
yeah, I mean, there's a clear control over the narrative in veterinary medicine. Let's be clear about that. This is also not the first time I've been censored. And granted, I, I also wanted to say, like, it was a private publication. They have every right to censor. They actually do have every right to censor what 100%. they want to. Yeah, what they want to use their megaphone to communicate to the world. That's totally fair. The place where it became dodgy, sketchy, and <laughs> okay, I understand what's happening here. Thank you. This is exactly evidence of what I'm talking about is that they elected to publish it. Someone got mad. Someone recognized themselves in their practices, in their own house call practice or corporate house call practice, and felt it as a finger point towards them. And you know what it was? They didn't like that. Why would they allow the article published first and then a month later have it pulled? That's what's sketchy. If they had rejected me to begin with, which was what I was expecting, to be honest, I was like, ah, they're never going to take this article. They took it, published it, and then pulled it. That's very, very different from saying, yep. you know, that's like, oh, we had people read this who didn't like it. Who would it have been that read it that didn't like it? Who? <laughs> like, realistically, who would it have been? And so, yeah, I did want to also tell you about kind of a corollary to that story, which is that I had someone who was fairly influential in the veterinary community, but I wasn't familiar with them at the time. But someone who has a leadership role reach out to me via Facebook and say, you know, I love that article. I'd really like to interview you on my podcast about these subjects. I agree with you. And this is great what you said. I had the interview with the person. It was a heartfelt more than an hour long conversation, dumped my heart and soul, <laughs> as I tend to do. If you haven't noticed, I'm a bit of an oversharer. That's a double-edged sword as well. But we had what I thought was a very real, authentic, and a little bit raw conversation. And, you know, a few months went by, hey, um, when, when's that podcast coming out? <laughs> oh, it'll be out next week. Oh, great. Wonderful. Thanks so much week goes by, another week goes by, and a month, another month. Hey, uh, looks like the podcast never came out. Okay, and it went on like this, and it's been a year. So needless to say, they opted to pick my brain, have this in-depth conversation with me, yet not air what it was that I said, and they didn't have the balls to tell me that either. So... <laughs> I also think this is a similar thing. What was the real reason you reached out to speak to me? Was it really because you were like-minded or was it to pick my brain or to, oh, I don't want to be too paranoid here, but it's very easy to imagine what could have happened and why this person reached out to me immediately after this article and then did not air my interview and would not clearly communicate with me why. So this is just another example of where, granted, this person is not required to air my episode. I respect that 100%. However, <laughs> the person knew exactly my stance, what I was going to say, kind of my MO, because they had been following my work, apparently, for some time, as was clear from the interview, and they're reaching out to me, and recorded the episode, told me they were going to record it, and then didn't. So that whole lead up is very different from just being like, this isn't a good match. I'm sorry, I don't want to put these words out there on my platform because I don't agree. Different, completely, completely different. And so I just sit with these things that have happened. And these are just a few of them. And it's to some extent, I've made peace. This is the price to pay if you have, you know, a non-conventional opinion on things. 
like you explained, and that it is the smoking gun itself. This is the proof of what I'm saying. This is exactly the proof. So it's sort of like, I'm flattered. Ooh, I had something to say that was so spicy that you had to pull the article. You couldn't air the podcast. Oh my word. <laughs> you know, so it's almost like flattering. But on the other hand, people don't get to hear the words. They don't get to read the words. And the situation that I'm drawing attention to continues to stay closed, right? Yep. Don't shine a light in the corner. You don't want things to scurry right. <laughs> and scatter, right? Like just, just keep I'm going to get so much shit for this podcast. I can tell you right now. It's good. I, I mean, <laughs> this will be aired. The one thing I was thinking about with that is I've done one podcast that never got aired and I always kind of wondered, I just didn't follow up with them, but it, there wasn't anything like spicy or controversial in it, mm -hmm. but I never asked them, but I don't even know if the pot, like if their podcast, like actually like took off or if they really released stuff or something changed and that's completely different versus someone asking you, it's not like you said, Hey, I want to come on your podcast and share. No. And then you came on and they're like, Whoa, no way we're sharing that. Right. right. But if you're asking for someone, you typically kind of know and yeah you go from there where it's just a respect thing. And you could even, if you felt like at the beginning, Hey, the views by guest XYZ are not my views, but this was such a good conversation. I had to release it. So here it is, right? Record a little, you know, intro like that. If you need to cover your ass that much, right? right. Like just, just right. release the darn thing. I don't know. I think too often uh, I give you credit, whether right or wrong, whether we agree or not, like the ability to not have to have everyone agree or love on or talk highly about how wonderful someone is because maybe your views are different and maybe the views are not always loved by the powers that be. And that's okay. We need people that are willing to speak their mind. And I thought, going back to censorship, self-censorship is a big problem. It's a really big problem because everyone's worried about getting canceled, right? Worried about getting canceled for a certain view. And I hope people can just get to the point. There's a really good article written by a guy talked about cancel yourself before others cancel you. And you just have to be comfortable with basically just accepting the fact that what you need to do is going back to what we talked about, like speak the truth for what you believe. And if it's that important, you shouldn't have to worry about the ramifications. You need to be comfortable with them. And if you do get canceled, be at peace with that. And maybe it does limit your career. Maybe it does limit your earning potential. Maybe it does limit these different things but it also could be impactful on people you've never met. And so I think being able to be bold and be honest and be open is super important. And going back to some of the other things you talked about before about just like working on yourself and doing these different things. One thing that I heard that was really good is you know, when you get, let's say it's like a bad habit or these things that just keep coming up, you're like, oh, why do I do that? And just using language, like I'm not a person that, and then fill in the blank with whatever it is. And like, it just helps yeah. you say like, that's not who I am. I'm not the person that does this. And like, I'm going to help course correct it's not perfect but it is something whoever said that it was really wise you know let's say i don't know whatever habit it is like when i get mad i do this or when i, I don't know, stuff like that so i love conversations like this one and conversations that people can feel like they can be honest and open and express things even if you don't agree you don't have to agree with everyone and that's okay yeah yeah and it takes time to have dissenting perspectives to hold those as this is that person's truth and I'm still valid. My opinions are still valid. I'm still okay. <laughs> you know, I think the problem comes when someone else's truth comes into conflict with your sense of identity. Like if they're true, then I'm invalid as a whole person. <laughs> and I think there's some work that could be done for every single one of us 
who faces a sort of like, what if I'm wrong? Oh my God. <laughs> like everything I've ever believed is wrong. And yeah, your worldview is shattered. You yeah. drastically change your mind on something. Is there anything, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but is there anything that you're willing to share that has been a massive change where you're like, I believe X, Y, Z, or I hold this to be true that you're like, I don't feel like that's true anymore. I actually, oh my God, I have a really good one. Oh, <laughs> I might kick myself for sharing this on the air, but I'll make you delete it later if I think that. Yeah, I, just say, if, if you it. delete it, we'll, we'll take it out. <laughs> I would say when I started the House Call Vet Academy, I was working with a coach that, and I'm always working with a coach. It's not always the same one, but I always have someone to bounce things off of, someone to help inspire me. I'm not above that. I always need someone to help me bring out the best in myself and to see the places where I'm not seeing myself. <laughs> I had a coach that I was working with that was heavy into marketing. And I give this coach incredible props for helping me get the House Call Vet Academy off the ground. I don't think I could have done it without her, to be very honest. However, some of her approaches that I bought into wholeheartedly now I look back and I cringe. I'm like, oh God, this is the language of corporate right here. Oh my God. <laughs> this is the way we scale things at the expense of the product, at the expense of the integrity of the work itself. And I learned my lesson and it was validated when the same coach started to solicit my clients from me directly. And I was like, okay, Okay, these things that I was feeling, I'm not aligned. I'm not doing things the way I feel is ethical in my own marketing. Oh my God, this is what it looks like when the person who is coaching me lives out to the full expression what they believe is right. And I'm like, boom, I was wrong. This is not the coach for me. I moved on and I'm still working through that. And it's still painful to sit with myself and be like, I did that. I did that. I didn't have to do that. <laughs> shit. <laughs> so I have a very different approach right now that I'm working on in my own marketing. And, you know, just trying to get more aligned with myself. And I don't think what she was doing was wrong. It was just aggressive. And it was corporate mentality. And that is very different from my heart. <laughs> and so it's been a really painful lesson that's played out in many, many, many ways. And I'm still living with the repercussions of putting myself out there to the world in a way that is not completely authentic with who I am. The Academy itself is completely authentic to who I am because my coach didn't have any influence on that content, but the marketing approach put me out to the world in a way that I regret. We'll put it that way. Thank you for sharing <laughs> that. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate that. I think that's super important to have alignment with any kind of person that you're going to bring into your world that is going to have an impact on, you know, personal or business stuff. One last question that hopefully we can tie in a little bit and then we'll turn it over to you for your question for me. You've been successful. You've had lots of things and the way that you define success is other like different than others. It's not all scale and grow and be the biggest thing ever, but any time you have success in business, you're going to have haters, right? And so you're going to have people that are going to try to punch and bring you down or, you know, sling mud or all those different things. And you've dealt with some like IP plagiarism stuff. I want to just kind of open that up and let you kind of share a little bit of your thoughts there. Yeah, this one's such a personal subject. And thank you for asking about it. Since I started the House Call Vet Academy, um, starting with my very first students, 
first month open, folks in the academy were using my words verbatim in public forums without credit to me. And it's only scaled substantially since that. And it's a tricky situation with IP intellectual property because if you're influencing people and they like your content, you're going to influence them and they're going to use that and they're going to take it and and then it's out of your control what they do with it, right? To some extent, there's a legal boundary around what is allowed and a moral and an ethical boundary around what is allowed being you don't plagiarize. You don't use other people's unique expression of their words that has come through the entire filter of my entire existence, how I perceive the world. Someone takes those words in exactly the way I put them or these two concepts that no one has ever connected before to my knowledge and makes it into one unified concept. And then another person helps themselves to that without credit. That's ethically questionable, legally illegal. (laughs) And it's shady and sketchy and creepy. It feels really bad. And At the same time, I have no control over what people do with it. It's out of my hands. I've given them information. Whether they subscribe to those laws or they subscribe to those ethics, I have no (laughs) capacity to influence that. And so it's been a really, really painful and educational process for me to learn what it is to be a, a teacher and to share unique ideas, proprietary information from my own business and see it used in ways that I never expected from my own colleagues. I think sometimes that there's an entitlement. Sometimes people feel, hey, I paid for this. It's now my knowledge. It's mine. (laughs) Some people see it that way. And some people have literally said to me in trying to fix my feelings about this, hey, um, what is it? Copying is flattery. I forgot the expression. I I hate it so much. I can't even remember it. But (laughs) it's like, yes, and... (laughs) you're taking a piece of my soul right now and claiming ownership of it. God, that hurts. You know, like, who am I if I'm not my ideas? And I've done a lot of work around the fact that I'm much more than my ideas, right? So it's gotten less painful over time. But there are some people who really feel imitation is flattery. That's what it is. But plagiarism is different from imitation, first of all, stealing IP without credit. So sometimes that's an entitlement. Sometimes people feel, hey, it's mine. I'm going to do it. As long as I don't get caught, she'll never know. Other times, and that's, I've had engagement with folks like that when I called them out and there's always this denial. And well, I thought of it too. Oh, really? Uh, A week after you watched my content on that subject, I can see from the back end that you watched it. (laughs) It's a really interesting time that you had the exact same thought and you explained it in (laughs) in a Facebook group in the exact same words I did. It's really interesting that you came up with the exact same tagline for your business as mine, (laughs) exactly to the word. Cool. Okay. Coincidences happen, but okay. (laughs) That generates sort of like a contentiousness that people feel entitled. Then they become haters and they lash out, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have folks who experience something that's called cryptamnesia. Have you ever heard of that word before? I have not. It's my favorite word ever. It's where we forget the source of the information we've learned. Now, I think cryptamnesia is responsible for the entirety of human culture. We've learned everything from somewhere, right? Like we behave the way we do because we mimicked our parents or we mimicked our tribe or whatever it was. But There are some people, and it seems to always be the same people, it's like a handful of folks who have this problem. They can't remember 
oh, I got this information. It's a proximity. I got this information yesterday from your course and I forgot that's where I got it from. So it's a matter of scale. Like we understand things and we learn things over time that we have no idea where we got the, the sky is blue. Where did I learn that from? I don't know. (laughs) I just know that fact. And some people have this like immediate cryptomnesia. They don't know where they got the info from. It's called inadvertent plagiarism is what cryptomnesia is. And it's like the same people seem to have it over and over again. So it's really, really interesting. And I've kind of put in a lot of work to try and understand those people and figure out how to hold those people in an ethical way while holding my boundaries and protecting my intellectual property, which is synonymous with my livelihood, right? My ideas are what I'm selling. My safe space, (laughs) my safe enough spaces are also what I'm selling. But if people take my ideas and run with them in the exact way that I've communicated them, it's very difficult for me. So there's that aspect of things. But then there's also, like you said, the kind of haters, like there's always people that will be jealous. Like I've had people kind of tear me down in in ways that were just like, man, (laughs) that was really mean what you just said to me. You don't even know me. It's your jealousy is palpable. You wish you were doing this. I can feel that. I understand. And then there's people who just don't agree with me and who come out and send me emails. I've never talked to this person in my life, like tearing me down uh, for what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, how I'm doing it, telling me how I should do a better job as an entrepreneur when they themselves are not an entrepreneur. (laughs) So it's a very, very interesting aspect of kind of the world that I find myself in. And it's, I'm trying to kind of see it as like, this is par for the course. Anyone who's ever done anything impactful has haters. People don't have to agree with me. They can disagree to their heart's content. (laughs) I might not ask them to be on my podcast. However, (laughs) I hope that they get their word out. Good. Good. They should. But you know, I I also uh, reserve my right to remove people like that from my inner circle. I don't need to be inundated with haters. The world has enough conflict I'm going to encounter haters whether I solicit their opinions and welcome their opinions or not. Haters will be there no matter what I do. And so I do take kind of precautions and I intentionally don't surround myself with people who are trying to tear me down, whether they're right or wrong. If their goal is to tear me down, (laughs) I can take their messaging and work with it in therapy later, but I don't need that person around to continue with their goal of tearing me down. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And the idea of the forgetting the source, it just makes me think of the, uh, or like, oh, I forgot where I heard it. It makes me think of the joke when people talk about like a husband and a wife where the husband has like selective hearing when it's like asking yeah. for a favor or chores or honey do list. And so I was like, oh, honey do list. Like yeah. Like, hey, can you do that? It's like, oh, I didn't hear you. What? No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a selective hearing and a selective memory. And I think we all have crypto. Every one of us has this concept, like it's part of being human. But some folks have it in a very, very unique and particular way regarding intellectual property. It's just, you know, like immediately exposed to that intellectual property. So it's just very, very interesting learning about this and observing humanity in in that manifestation of itself. (laughs) Absolutely. So we've arrived at the point where you can fire a question away and then we'll kind of close. So yeah, floor is yours, whatever question you want to ask. 
Well, I was originally going to ask you, what do you think of corporate practice? I think I have a sense of it from our conversation, but I would be interested if you had any other thoughts about it. And then also, I don't know if we have time, but I'm curious what you do for your personal development. A person who's doing what you do and running a podcast, I'm sure you have some sort of personal development path or coach or something. I'm just really curious how you support all the work that you do. You might be very disappointed <laughs> with my answer. <laughs> the first one on corporate, it's tricky. I don't know if corporate is as bad as maybe you and others feel, but I also am not a veterinarian, so I don't know for sure, right? Like I've not lived that, I've not seen everything, but I also don't think it's a net positive as much as others will credit it. I like straddle a little bit in the middle at times. So one of the big ones I look at is like benefits, right? So benefits for frontline techs for people that are CSR, stuff like that, like being able to have access to benefits, harder for private practice, especially smaller locations, just because of cost and money and things we've talked about. And a larger entity is going to have purchasing power and buying power to offer that. So maybe that helps. And is that a good thing for the profession or is that a bad thing? And I look at that, I'm like, probably a good thing candidly for those people. But a lot of things that you highlight, I totally agree with. And I am definitely more pro private practice ownership than corporate. And I, I've been that way since I started the podcast in 2019. I think more people have an ability to do a privately owned practice than what they will give themselves credit for. And they don't have to do it alone. And I think sometimes people sell themselves short. But if you don't want to do it, that's okay. And I think that's important too, that it's not like, well, everyone should do it because that's the way you got to do it. And it's not easy, but I think more people can do it. And I would go back to the idea of who's paying for stuff in schools. And I think there's an inherent bias that has been built up of telling young veterinarians that they can't do it, or it's too hard, or it's too expensive, or they have too much debt, or they have all these things. And they fill their heads with, you can't do it for four years. And then they feel like they got to unlearn some of that or take it away. And I know there's some really great people working on showing those that are still interested how to do it. And I love that. So I want to support that. I would love to see if there is some quasi scaling corporate, non-corporate option to be more veterinarian owned and less private equity venture capital owns, because I think it aligns the benefits a little bit better. You have veterinarians that are majority owners. And maybe there just needs to be more seats at the top that are DVMs. And I'm not saying that DVMs should run everything because I don't think they have the financial knowledge to be the, you know, the CFO, right? Like maybe they do need someone that was you know trained in corporate finance to run that. That's probably a better thing. But can a veterinarian learn it? Absolutely. But every position doesn't necessarily need to be that person. But I think there needs to be a lot more say in how the business is structured and run for someone that has done it. You need to have someone that's done the role dictate how things are run and not the person that's read about it. Because anyone that's done anything in their life, you can read as much as you want until you do it. You don't really learn. You got your hands dirty. Exactly. So if they've never got their hands dirty, they shouldn't be the one running that. So those are my thoughts there. And then personal development, shoot, don't have a coach, never have. It's not that I'm negative to it. I think I'm just cheap if I'm being honest, right? Like <laughs> tried to, to do it in a way where this podcast is kind of morphed into me being able to learn. And so I've just learned from every single guest, including you, that I just pick up things and have been able to learn. And so I love listening to podcasts. So I learn that way. I like to read and consume content. So I guess that would be the way I would look at it. But I could definitely get better by having someone to hold you more accountable or do those things. But I think I just haven't. I don't know why for sure. Maybe I just haven't found the right person. Or sometimes I just... I don't know. There's different people that I maybe have met over time that are coaches. I think there's really good ones. I've met some good ones, especially in vet med, 
but those that have approached me or have had the people reach out just always been like, eh, not really my style. Going back to what you talked about being kind of more true to the way you want to do it. And I think that's always been my issue is I wanted it to be a true reflection of me and not have outside influences. So I do think, and I haven't read it in a while, but it's sitting over here, like The Atomic Habits by James Clear is a great book that a lot yeah. of people have talked about. And I think it's really good to like reread every so often because it does kind of recenter some things that you need to, to focus on. And that would be a really good one from a personal development standpoint. But no, I mean, that's the answer. It's a good question. No one's ever asked me that. Really? Very interesting. And I can hold the places where we disagree. I think that's fine. That's great, particularly regarding corporate practice. And I can see your truth and mine. Yeah. <laughs> I think like that, I should just put a pen and be like, done, you know, drop it. No, but I want to, yeah. as we close, places to connect with you, reach out, plug the House Call Vet Academy, all that stuff. And I'll put it in the show notes, but where and how can people connect with you? So... My website is www.dreveharrison, so drevharrison.com. I have an Instagram, which is the House Call Vet Academy, and a Facebook page, which is also the House Call Vet Academy. I've got a podcast as well for any House Call Vets out there listening, which is called the House Call Vet Cafe. And we'll have to get Isaiah on there. <laughs> Next, you'll be hearing from him regarding all things finance, Bitcoin, <laughs> and disagreements, uh, uh, non-dual reality. <laughs> yeah, you go. yeah, you're going to start asking me hard questions. Like, I don't know the answer either. And I just asked the What is the meaning of life? That's going to be question number one. Just payback, you know, fair's yeah. fair. <laughs> And then I've got a house call and mobile vet virtual conference that happens each year. And if anyone wants to email me directly for more information, they're welcome to do that. My email is info at dreveharrison.com. I'd love to hear from anyone who is interested in either of these subjects or the academy. Yeah, love it. Thank you so much for the time. This was a blast. Really, really appreciate you and the time. Awesome. Thank you so much for what you do. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation on my pod. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment tax or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. However, you are intelligent enough to make decisions for yourself. So I do encourage you to dig in, learn for yourself, and not just outsource every decision that you make. You should talk to your professional team if you have one before implementing anything that I talk about but also make sure they know what they're talking about. Push them, question them. That's healthy. That's okay. Oh yeah. And you should probably own and learn a little bit about that Bitcoin thing. The biggest compliment you can give to me is to share the show with a friend or the podcast. If there's another episode that you really like, that helps folks find it. That helps it grow. Um, reviews are critical. The Apple podcast is the platform that's predominantly used for how people find the show. So if you have three minutes, love the show, please head over Give us five stars if you believe that's what we earned. That would help more people find the show. Also, if you're new, go to YouTube. It's a channel. Uh, putting up all the videos there as well. Sometimes it's going to be more interactive. Other times it's just going to be the conversation. So vainly, I want to get 100 subscribers so I get the vanity URL. That's the goal. We're on our way, but not quite there yet. For all of today's links information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss any episodes in the future. And finally, if you'd like more information, insights, or have the ability to, for your voice to be heard, join the Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinarian Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll to the bottom, about your host, click on the Facebook icon. And thanks again for listening. I appreciate you. All right. So there are a lot of great job postings 
that I want to get to. And so we're going to start off with Bayside Hospital for Animals. Great work-life balance in beautiful Fort Walton Beach, Florida. No weekends, Monday to Friday, 8 to 5, no on-call or emergencies. It's appointment only here. Currently a two and a half doctor practice, new owner in 2021, bringing some fresh life into the hospital. The new owner had been there for six years prior working, so definitely understands the team, the processes in the community. Lots of investment in people and new equipment. ProSal is the pay structure. Far too many benefits for me to list. Email BaysideVet251 at Yahoo or call 850-864-1857. Join a thriving growing small animal practice in Vermont on the Quebec border, full-time ideal, part-time is considered. The idea is to start with yes with the team, patients and clients in outdoor woman's paradise while uh, being able to practice high quality medicine. Compensation is write your own structure within production capabilities. Literally, it is the owner wants to find the right person and is happy to negotiate, chat through and find the right fit. If you want autonomy and a boss that enjoys teaching, reach out to Newport Veterinary Hospital. You can email newportveterinaryhospital at gmail.com. North Central Indiana, looking for an oasis in the chaos. Who isn't, right? Come join the amazing team at Fulton County Veterinary Clinic. They strive to foster a fun, fast-paced work environment while providing quality patient care. They utilize the support staff efficiently so that the doctor is available to practice medicine and do what you're trained to do in less time and paperwork, which is great. Lots of investment in new equipment and technology to support you, full-time or part-time available. Small animal and exotics are both seen there, so no ER. No on call, no weekends, competitive salary with sign on bonus offered, and far too many benefits to list. Go to Fulton County Veterinary Clinic. So type that in and you'll find the job posting there. Last but not least, join Watertown Animal Hospital, personable, small animal veterinarian wanted for well established current five doctor mixed animal practice in northern New York, which is an outdoors person's paradise. Again, two of those. So if you like the outdoors, you can look at Vermont or New York. They have plenty of support staff with six CSRs six licensed technicians, four animal caretakers, two technical assistants, a hospital associate, or sorry, hospital assistant, a practice manager, and a bookkeeper. Focuses on mentorship and investment on the people and the technology. That's been a strategic initiative by the leadership team. No on-call, a 24-hour ER less than an hour away. Salary based on experience, but no less than 95000 Can be straight salary, pro-sal considered. Want to discuss that with the right person. Tons of benefits. Again, too much to list. Please reach out to Watertown petcare.com for that option as well. So again, if you find a role or a job or talk to anyone and it helps you in any way, I would love to hear that feedback. So please reach out, let me know what you're able to do. And I will continue to post these. So if you are an owner, reach out to me, let me know, and we'll go from there. And until I hit a capacity of, I can't keep recording these, I want to let people know who are high quality owners around the country looking for great help. So with that, we'll talk soon.